Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Mr. Arnett, welcome to the i3 podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. So this time is different uh, according to Sir John Templeton are the four most expensive words in in history. But I'm sitting here at home and uh, I've got all my kids on laptops. They're trying to uh, uh, follow their classes virtually. I've got my wife at a desk who is teaching maths virtually. And I'm sitting here behind the computer in actually my son's bedroom, but I got a virtual background, so you can't see it. It certainly feels different. <laughs> what is your take on it? I hope it's not like most kids' uh, bedrooms piled with dirty clothes, but that's uh, uh, a good reason for a virtual background, I guess. That's indeed why I have a virtual background. <laughs> so is it this time different? Well, when people say it's different this time, that's always true. Things are always different this time in some ways. Uh, the observation that history doesn't repeat, but it sure rhymes, is I think a great, great way to think about this. The observation that those who refuse to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat its errors is also well worth remembering. Uh, this is uh, sort of the ultimate black swan event. The pandemic itself is a black swan, and the government's uh, collective reactions around the world are a second black swan on top of the first black swan. Pathogens have been part of human existence forever. And this is not the nastiest one out there. It's just the nastiest at the moment. And uh, it's also more virulent, spreads more easily than the vast majority. SARS was much more deadly. Uh, MERS was much more deadly, but MERS didn't spread very well and SARS didn't spread as well as uh, COVID does. So um, yes, things are different this time. Roll the clock forward three years. Will things three years from now be radically different from today? Only if we choose to make permanent radical changes to the way we function. Yeah, absolutely. And it will impact different industries differently, I suppose, as well. I mean, we see a bit more impact on, on airlines, for example. And I suppose mm-hmm. with some of them, it's a, a matter of whether they just can sit it out. Yeah, yeah. there's industries where bankruptcy will be the norm. Uh, airlines come to mind, uh, restaurants, and there are many others. And there are industries that have been helped by this. Uh, Amazon, uh, Zoom, what we're using right here, right now. 
so, but again, I like to roll the clock forward and ask, how much impact is this going to have on the way the markets function, the way the economy functions, and um, the ways we invest uh, three years from now versus today? And I, I don't see this as a step into a future that's unrecognizable. I see this as a temporarily massively disruptive bolt from the blue. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the value premium and, and mainly yes. around one of the, the, the papers you recently uh, wrote, I think from uh, January, where it says uh, the reports of value staff may be greatly exaggerated. <laughs> And I was wondering, to a degree, we've seen such a, a drop in market prices. Could this also be a catalyst for volume to come back again? Well, it certainly can be. Uh, this, this particular market route affected value stocks more harshly than growth stocks. And um, that bears um, very careful reflection. What's happened here? The tech stocks, the FANG type stocks, generally seen as immune to supply disruptions, generally seen as arguably even beneficiaries. Uh, Netflix were all stuck at home watching movies. Uh, and so the notion that these stocks are somehow immune to the effects of COVID overlooks some very basic realities. What's, what's the profit engine for Google or for Facebook? It's advertising. What's the first thing that goes out the window uh, in a budget when you have an economic meltdown, advertising. So the notion that these stocks are not going to get hit is naive. The supply disruptions, which affect the value stocks, also a basis for these stocks getting very badly hit. Think about it this way. The, uh, there will be companies that go out of business. That leaves a clearer runway and less competition for the survivors so that they can come back and be more profitable than ever. The other thing that's interesting is deficit spending flows through to corporate balance sheets. And so the deficit spending, unless it, it winds up being stuck on the Fed's balance sheet, is really intended to go out and encourage people to spend. A couple of observations. If it goes out to people to spend and you have more money than ever, chasing fewer goods and services because people aren't producing the goods and services, what does that create? Inflation. And the deficit spending also goes out to the private sector. And what we found is that there's roughly a one-to-one -one ratio between incremental profits and incremental deficit spending. Now, it's not a perfect relationship, but it's a very strong relationship. So uh, if we're spending trillion, two trillion three trillion more than we were spending. The notion that that could create a trillion, two trillion, three trillion more corporate profits in the coming year or two is also a very real possibility. So there's, there's some interesting nuances that most of the investment community is just overlooking. And you've done some work as well on the idea that technology companies change the way how value works. And you looked at the role of, of intrinsic uh, value and, and how this changes the valuation process. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Part of the paper uh, on death of value being greatly exaggerated focuses on one of the changes in the ways we think about value that uh, is indeed legitimate. We looked at a lot of explanations for why things have gone 
so badly wrong for value over the last 12 years. Narratives like, hmm, everybody knows that value works and therefore it stopped working. It's been arbitraged away. Well, if that was true, then the fact that, that money is pouring into value stocks should close the valuation gap between growth and value. And that hasn't happened. It's gone the other way. Another narrative is that uh, low interest rates mean the net present value of profits 20 years in the future, which is what growth companies depend on, worth a lot more than when interest rates are higher. Yeah, that's true. But what we find is that movement in interest rates has a bearing on growth versus value. Falling rates are good for growth. Rising rates are good for value. But the level doesn't matter because the level tends to be so highly correlated with growth expectations. So in the Gordon equation, the numerator and the denominator are both changed. We hear the narrative that uh, growth companies are growthier than they used to be, more reliably growthier than they used to be, less likely to fall out of favor than used to be the case. And we test each and every one of these ideas, and it turns out to be absolutely false. So the narratives for why value fails don't work, with one important exception, and that is that uh, book value is a terrible measure of value. It overlooks great swaths of a company's asset base. Uh, the liabilities are well known, but the asset base includes intangibles like brands, patents, human capital, teams, uh, corporate culture, you name it. So what we did is to try to proxy the value of the intangibles using uh, by capitalizing the R&D spending and some of the spending on marketing-related activities. And by capitalizing that and then taking it off the balance sheet after over a 10-year span, you wind up boosting the value of intangibles for companies that are investing a lot in brand and a lot of in innovation and in patents and so forth. And by boosting that adjusted book value, the price to book falls, and they might not be categorized as growth stocks with that change. So one of the tests that we did was to ask the question, if you take intangibles into account, does value still work? Well, it works better than an ordinary price to book by a wide margin. And so that was an exciting finding. It suggests that um, price to book is a really weak gauge of whether a stock is cheap or expensive, even though it's uh, the one that's most favored in academia. So should value processes be adjusted then to account for, for this? Oh, I think they should be. Um, the In developing the fundamental index concept, we don't rely singularly on book to price. We also look at sales to price, cash flow to price, dividends to price. And a blend of those four really defines the fundamental index weight relative to the cap weight. So the fundamental index weight goes up if companies have a blended valuation multiple that's low. So when we do that, we introduce a value tilt, but it's a special kind of value tilt that overweights companies that are trading at deep discounts and only lightly overweighting them if they're at moderately low discounts. The consequence is that it works way better than ordinary value indexes, cap-weighted value indexes. This work points up one of the failings of one of the valuation multiples, book to price. Book to price, going all the way back to Ben Graham in 1937, uh, he wrote about book to price being a mediocre gauge. And, um, and he was right. Today, over half of the assets of a typical business are intangibles that don't show up on the book value. 
and book value captures only about 40% of the total assets of a, of a company. With value companies, half of the assets of a company are intangibles. With growth companies, it's two thirds. So it's big and it didn't used to be. 50 years ago, it was a relatively modest share of the total capital of the company. Uh, one other factor that you looked at in what uh, sort of explains the the not working of value over the last 10 to 12 years is the idea that uh, private equity investors potentially buy up undervalued stocks. Um, and that this leaves fewer value opportunities for, for other investors. Can you talk a little bit about that and also about the the fact that people sometimes say, well, it's even before their list that they just stay private for much longer. And so a lot of the the, yeah. the increase in value has already been had by the time they list. Yeah. I think it's more a function of the latter effect than private equity companies buying out values. This is very much like the notion of value being arbitraged away. If if uh, private equity companies are snapping up the good value companies and leaving the bad ones, then why hasn't that had the effect of bidding up, pushing up the valuation multiples for value? It hasn't. The other element here is a very simple one, and that is that um, the rules imposed on a publicly traded stock are more onerous than ever before more expensive than ever before. I cannot imagine research affiliates going public. I would um, instantly resign if uh, the the company was (laughs) required to go public. Uh, Just don't need that hassle. And so what you find is that companies that do go public are ones that are past their early and best growth years. There's exceptions. Amazon and Google are vivid examples. But a lot of companies prefer to stay private. Yeah, yeah. If we look at some of the other factors uh, besides value, so we had a uh, a model that became popular uh, in the last uh, two or three years uh, in the U.S. that that said basically you need to add a lot of trend following to your portfolio to protect mm-hmm. your portfolio because bonds are not working. Now, I had a little bit of uh, a look into what was happening, uh, what is happening in the moment with that and whether it forms any protection, but it seems that there's a very big dispersion in performance between the different uh, strategies. Can you give us some thoughts around that? Well, to be sure, each of these factors uh, has its own definition. And Cam Harvey, who's an advisor to our company, did a survey paper in which he found that 400 factors had been published in the last decade in just the three top finance journals. Three journals, 400 factors. Uh, I asked him how many of them worked, and he laughed and said 400. Um, I asked him how many were statistically significant, and he said almost 400. I asked him how many of them set aside a holdout period to test the idea on a different geography, different country, different market, different time span. And he said almost none of them did that, which means that you've got massive data mining and selection bias. You're only going to publish it if it works. So you have to take the back test with a massive grain of salt. Multi-factor investing has become very popular, very big, but it's built on a foundation that these factors all work. They just work at different times. Well, I don't know that they all work. I don't know that that's accurate. Um, We know that they all worked historically, otherwise they wouldn't have been published. That doesn't mean they will work in the future. It doesn't mean that they have a structural reason that they should work. Take low beta. 
why should low beta, why should a lower risk portfolio have a higher risk premium? It doesn't make sense. Why should a higher quality portfolio have a higher risk premium than a lower quality portfolio, especially if the measures of quality are things that you can identify very easily like profit margins? Momentum, why should a stock that has gone up go up more just because it went up? Doesn't make sense. Now, it doesn't mean I think that all of these ideas are bad ideas. It just means I take them all with a grain of salt. And I think some of them will work, some of them won't work. I don't know which ones will work. The one that I have confidence in is value because it has a behavioral underpinning. Things that are uncomfortable to buy ought to have a higher risk premium. So we've done a lot of work on momentum. One thing you'll never hear a multi-factor or a factor-based investment manager tell you is the simple fact that momentum hasn't worked since 1999. It worked for a year or two, then crashed, worked for a year or two, then crashed, worked through uh, end of 08, middle of the global financial crisis, and then had crash ever in April of 2009. Uh, then it worked for a few years, then it crashed, and now it's crashed again. So you look at momentum and realize that the alpha for classically defined momentum as a factor, as a strategy, was brilliant and reliable in the 20th century and has not existed in the 21st century. And yet, how often do you hear a multi-factor manager saying, oh, we don't believe in this one anymore. We've ditched it. Yeah, not so often. And I think um, last time you came on, on our podcast, you, you flagged that you were working on a paper that, uh, which topic basically was how quantitative methods can get you into trouble. I taste a little bit yeah. of that in your answer, is that right? That's very, very much true. We actually published that paper. It was jointly with Harry Markowitz and Cam Harvey. And um, it was published in uh, the Journal of, journal of Data Sciences, I believe it was called, uh, which is a new journal aimed at, at big data, machine learning, and so forth. And it was a, it entitled A Protocol for Machine Learning, which basically went through a laundry list of things you could do that would screw things up and a list of things to avoid doing and recognition that the vast majority of people involved in quantitative investing and in machine learning aren't going to pay any attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the most undersighted paper that um, Harry Markowitz ever wrote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we'll give it some time. Maybe it will come back. Um, so if you look at the current market environment and um, with, with everything that's going on, how would you change the way that you invest? Would you make any changes? Would you just have a multi-factor portfolio in place? Or is this a time to buy? What, what are your thoughts around that? Well, firstly, what's cheap is value. The other factors aren't cheap right now. So... Given a choice, I would stick with value. I'd stick with um, plain vanilla fundamental index. Um, if somebody wants a more diversified roster of bets in, in their portfolio, then multi-factor can certainly be considered. But I've often said that the time to buy is at peak fear. You don't wait until things are okay to buy. That's what most people want to do. They, they say, I'll wait till things settle down, then I'll buy. Well, that means that you won't 
buy at all. So the time to buy is when you're at peak fear. We had a bout of peak fear in the last week. I think we'll see several bouts of peak fear in the coming weeks, perhaps months. Now, if that's the case, you get multiple buying opportunities. So what do you buy? You don't buy what's been hit hardest. You buy what's been hit hardest relative to its own vulnerability to current events. What do I mean by that? Value has been crushed. Value has underperformed growth all over the world by about a thousand basis points in three months. Are value stocks going to come back? Not all of them, of course, but as a segment of the market, sure. And they're trading at the cheapest ever with the sole exception of the peak two months of the tech bubble. I like the idea of buying when things are that cheap. The other thing to ask is, are there markets that are outliers? And I look around the world, emerging markets come readily to mind. UK and Australia come readily to mind. UK has, um, uh, let's see, a dividend yield of 4.5% as of the end of February. So let's call it 5.5% today. Uh, Australia has yield of uh, 4% at the end of February. Uh, let's call it 5% today. A 5% yield is a heck of a step in the direction of a 5% real return. So that sounds good. Value in these markets are really cheap. So that sounds good. And emerging markets, the yield is also north of 5%. So then the question is, is there something special about Australia or the UK or emerging markets that will make these economies um, more hit or less hit by the current crisis? And I think the, the answer for Australia and the UK is um, there's no reason to think it's any different from US or rest of Europe. In case of emerging markets, I come up with a, a um, somewhat surprising answer. And that is, yes, their medical systems are terrible compared to the developed world. Yes, this pandemic is going to ravage their citizenry. But in the emerging economies, you have a crisis a year or a crisis every two years. So this is just another in a long series of nasty crises. So which gets hit harder by something like this relative to their own historic norms? A highly developed country where everything moves smoothly and that where you haven't had a recession in almost 30 years, or, or a country where nasty things happen all the time, and all they need to do is weather this storm and try not to make blunders, and just catching up with the developed world is all they need to have superior growth. So I look on emerging markets as an extraordinary buy right now, especially on the value end of the spectrum, because their bat stocks, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, are priced parapasu with our FANG stocks. So that means if they're half our valuation multiple and their growth stocks are fully valued relative to our growth stocks, then their value stocks must be extraordinarily cheap, and they sure are. Yeah, and also um, developed markets, they there's a lot of uh, stimulus packages being rolled out as yes. well. I mean, the U.S. announced two trillion dollars worth of stimulus. That's just on the fiscal side, and on the monetary side, it's without limit. Yeah, and so do you think that this might distort the way that uh, uh, factors will work? 
Of course it will. Um, what, you've, what we've seen is that the Fed put, put again and again and again rescues, rescues the stock market. It doesn't rescue the economy. It does almost nothing for the economy, but it does rescue the stock market. So is this a big enough bazooka to bail out the stock market? Maybe. I wouldn't want to count on it. And at some point, it will fail. If you print limitless sums of new money, and that money is chasing a diminished roster of goods and services because so many people are out of work, you get inflation. The only way to sterilize the money creation to prevent it from creating inflation is just leave it on the balance sheet of the Fed. All right, well, that doesn't accomplish anything. What we see happening is the governments around the world basically saying, we're going to close the economy for business. We're going to destroy supply chains. We're going to let millions of small businesses go bankrupt. And we're going to do it to uh, rein in the spread of COVID. But don't worry, we're going to throw trillions of dollars into the economy to bolster it. What does that accomplish? You have to have a functional economy for it to do anything. And so if you make the, the economy non-functional, then pouring money into it doesn't, doesn't really help. No, no, that's fair enough. Well, Rob, thank you very much for your time today. This was a very interesting discussion, and um, I hope it will go well on your side with the, with the crisis too. I hope your podcast listeners are all hunkering down and staying safe and staying healthy. And uh, I hope we all get a chance to go back to work very, very soon. The way East Asian countries have dealt with this is to identify who's the carrier, isolate them, and wait. And that's so much better than just shutting the whole thing down. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, stay safe too. Thank you very much for all this right. interview. All right, take care. All the best. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.